The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. A reading from John's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews then said, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sherry. Well, uh, it happens to me, maybe once a month, bare minimum, I'm sure it happens to many of you too, and that is, you see a link on social media for life hacks, right? You're familiar with these, right? You've heard of life hacks. They're little, little tricks, little things you can do to kind of simplify your life, little oddities about how things work that you never knew before, like the, like the wooden spoon over the, the pasta pot as it's boiling to keep it from overflowing. You, you heard of this? You never heard of that? Listen, it, don't, don't Google it now, but later, if you want to Google life hacks, you'll learn all kinds of stuff, um, but just don't do it right now. But you, you can find out all kinds of things. Some of them are probably not true. Um, but there are all kinds of things that you can do. And some of these things I see and it just kind of blows, blows my mind. Why doesn't everybody do it this way? Why did why, why it take so long? Like holding a, a nail with a clothespin so you don't hit your thumb. Like it's just genius, right? Or when you go to a, uh, like a, a party where there's going to be lots of different kinds of soups or chili, bring a muffin tin. And then you can try like a bunch of them and you won't overdo it. <laughs> if your phone gets wet, you put it in a bag of rice. I mean, you've, you've heard of, of, of a lot of these, these life hacks. I'm sure you have uh, some favorites. I have one that I have embraced. I've just thrown both of my arms around. And that is my closet at home is, is pretty much exclusively blue, black, and gray. Um, I had somebody who knew something about fashion tell me my color palette was blue, gray, and black, and silver, and I said, okay, and then got rid of all my khakis and earth tones and, and never looked back, and I'm, I'm just, I'm happy because I spend like no time thinking about what I'm going to wear, and when you see me, you recognize me, 
because I always look basically like this, right? <laughs> there are these little life hacks that we can, we can employ. There are also bigger ones that you can read about online, things that are kind of the voices of our age uh, that will tell you things like um, cut loose every, uh, get rid of everything that's unnecessary, you know? Purge your house and your belongings to where you just don't own anything that you don't use or, or need. Simplify. Um, even some of them will say, get rid of unnecessary and negative people in your life. Just, just cut them loose. Be done with them. And then your life will be better. And your life will be simpler. As surprising and interesting as life hacks can be, they, they do raise a certain existential question. And that question is this. Should ease be an objective in life? Should ease be an objective in life? I mean, we are, just in the time, doesn't matter how old you are, you've seen technology advance in ways that have made life exponentially easier, right? But should ease be the objective in our life, and if it is, what's the value then that lies behind? If we say, yes, ease should be a goal, why? What's the value that's behind it? Because the technological advances, by and large, are all driving toward taking the work and the imprecision out of things. So we have cars that park themselves, right? It was a rite of passage for me as a kid to learn how to drive a stick and to learn how to parallel park. There's a generation right now that is alive that will never do either on their own without assistance from a vehicle that already knows how to do both, right? We have voice messaging. I don't have to type anything. I can just talk into my phone and it'll type it for me, right? We have surgical robotics, which is pretty cool. Like robots that will do surgery on people. We have Waze. You know, Waze, the, the navigation app. I ignored Waze yesterday, and it took me um, four hours to get here from Chattanooga. <sighs> we live and we learn. I ignored Waze twice, actually, uh, from Chattanooga to, to Nashville. The first time, it cost me an hour and a half, and the second time I ignored it, added on another 30 minutes. But uh, I held my ground. We have, we, have, we have apps that control gadgets from afar, right? We can turn lights on and off in our house. I could go on. We want things to be straightforward. We want things to be simple. We want things to be precise. But to achieve this, what we often lose in the process is we lose the human element. We lose that interaction with people. It's one of the beauties of baseball, if you're a baseball fan, is the human element is at work in baseball. You know, there's an umpire... And that ball that gets thrown from the pitcher to the catcher is nothing until the umpire says it is, right? It's not a strike, it's not a ball, it's not anything until the umpire declares. And sometimes he's right, and sometimes he's wrong, but what he says is what it is. We want things to be simple, straightforward, precise, but we lose the human element, and so we, we don't learn things like geography. We don't know how to drive unassisted from our house to church without looking at some device that's telling us, hey, you're going to want to turn right here. We don't learn the names of streets. We don't learn to spell. We just look for that squiggly little red line under words, and we pick the one that looks correct, right? Oh, that's the one I meant. 
And so the pursuit of ease and precision makes its way into every facet of our lives. All of us have used this technology at some point even today. It's making its way in, and it has been for a long time, into worship as well. And there's, there's, a, there's a problem there. It's a problem when the goal, when one of our operating goals in worship is for it to be easy, is for it to be simple, is for it to be something that we can get in, get done, get out, right? You can get any kind of theological or spiritual content that you want on demand right now. The the worship music that stirs your soul, you can find what it is and it'll be different from the other people around you, but you can have it, you can listen to your favorite speakers, you can listen to them live. You can live live stream a pastor on the other side of the world who you like and you can learn from his teaching. These are good things, but it also makes it so that we can be very um, self-centered even in our worship, where it's all about tailoring things to our preferences. And that shapes us. Today's text is a reminder that the goal of worship is not ease. The goal of worship is not ease. And the way it reminds us, the way our text reminds us that the goal of worship is not ease, is by telling us, about what worship actually is and what it's for. And that's what I want us to talk about today. That's what I want us to break down because it's so valuable and it's so important and vital for us to learn because, listen, if you're in this room, it's because you've come to worship or you've come to a worship service. And so what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing? I think it's good for a pastor to just raise the question at least once a year, why are we here? What What are we really doing right now? And today's text is one that helps us with that. It's an interesting passage. It's one that we could easily misread because you look at this passage and there's all kinds of fascinating questions that come up, including, is Jesus losing his mind here? Is he losing his temper? Is Jesus being violent in this passage? Makes a whip, drives things out, right? Is, he, is this the passage where Jesus is beating somebody up? He's hurting somebody else. This passage, is, it, it happens, the one we read here is early in Jesus' ministry. This is before anybody really knows who he is. It's John chapter 2. He's, he, he has a lot of things that are coming ahead of him, or that are coming after this. But this isn't the only time when he cleanses the temple. One of the things that's fascinating about the story of Jesus cleansing the temple is that this um, action bookends his earthly ministry. He does it early on in John 2 when no one really knows who he is during Passover week. And then he does it again on the Monday of Holy Week. The Monday when he's arrested. That's the Monday right after the triumphal entry. He goes into the temple. Now everybody knows who he is. There's a plot to kill him. And it's also Passover week, which is the busiest holiday for the Jewish calendar. And Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem is the hottest place for that busy calendar. Everybody's coming there. The pilgrims are just flooding in to worship there. And on the beginning of his ministry and the end of his ministry, he goes during Passover into the temple and he overturns the money changers' tables and he drives out the livestock and he does this. It's big. It's big. And it follows this similar pattern 
where he focuses on two things, the animals that are being sold and the money that's being exchanged. Tables get upended, coins spill onto a stone floor and clink and rattle and roll around. And everybody turns and looks. And here's this person who has interrupted something that is pretty normal, really. It's it, like Jesus in doing this, he doesn't stop the practice from happening. We know that because he does it early on and then he does it about three or so years later and it's still continuing on. But he does it. He drives them out. We know that he's not just losing his temper. And the reason we know he's not losing his temper, flying off the handle, is because he, he does some very deliberate things. Like he takes time to make a whip of cords. So he didn't find one, pick it up in anger, and just start lashing. He makes one. And he makes that whip of cords, not for people, but for livestock. If you've ever worked with livestock, you know that to get them to move, they must be compelled, right? You can't just talk to them. You have to motivate them. You have to drive them. And so that's what he does. This is, not a, this is a premeditated act. And the words he speaks also confirm this. That Jesus has something he wants to say, and he's speaking about the proper purpose of the temple. And he's indicting those um, who are in charge for turning it into something else. And so he's, he's going in and he's saying, this is meant to be a house of worship and a house of prayer for all people, and instead it's become a marketplace. It's just fascinating to me to think about how Christianity culturally has a marketplace right now, Right? I mean, we have, Lifeway just announced that they're closing all of their brick and mortar stores. But that's not an indication that Christian product is not selling anymore. It's that it's selling like crazy. It's just selling online. But there's a market for this. There's a market for Christian stuff. And, and it's a big market. And people are buying it hook, line, and sinker. And many of us are equating that with worshiping God. Even though interacting with God himself may never really happen in that, in that scenario. So Jesus does this, he says, this, this temple, this temple is meant to be a place where God is worshipped and is revered and it's become a marketplace. What was the focus of the marketplace? They weren't selling just souvenirs and trinkets. You know, it wasn't one of those places where you could get a, a coin, a commemorative coin uh, for, you know, Passover in 28 AD or whatever it was. You know, it was, it was, it was no, they were selling things that were actually used in worship. So if you want to think of it this way, it was basically a convenience store for worship. You could go in and you could, you could make your pilgrimage, you could arrive in Jerusalem, and then you could acquire what you needed to make the requisite sacrifices. And it was all right there, and it was convenient, and yeah, it would cost you a little bit, there'd be a little bit of a markup, but you could do it, right? And so they're selling the animals that scripture calls for for sacrifice. They're exchanging money in much the same way as a currency exchange in an airport, right, where people have come from all over the place and they've come to this one city and they're trading in their currency for the currency that's local so that they can give local currency in the offering plate for the temple that they're worshiping in. 
And so prices get marked up and people take a cut and all that, but that's been happening since the foundation of the world. And Jesus sees all this. He grew up seeing all this. This was part of the temple experience. We know from Scripture that he grew up in a family where they they went for Passover every year. So this was nothing new. And he didn't end the practice by overturning the tables. But what Jesus sees is he sees worship itself has turned into a series of empty rituals and life hacks. And it's all being overseen and approved of by the religious leadership. And so he responds. And he responds with what one commentator, F.F. Bruce, calls an act of prophetic symbolism. So he's making a statement. It's an act of prophetic symbolism. Okay, so we see the surface. We'll talk about that act of prophetic symbolism in just a minute. But we see the surface, right? He goes in. It's a marketplace instead of a house of prayer. He causes a commotion. He speaks his peace. But I want us to dig in a little deeper. Because if this is prophetic symbolism, what's being symbolized specifically? What is he specifically symbolizing? And what does it have to do with us? Because friends, this has everything to do with us. You, to, to engage with this passage, you don't have to transport yourself halfway around the globe to this temple made of stone. This has everything to do with you and Jesus knows it. So when Jesus did this, when he overturned the money changers tables, there was something he knew that nobody else knew. And what it is that he knew was he knew that Jerusalem sat on the knife's edge of history. It had been one way for a long time. And the one way it had been is Jerusalem was the city that was defined by housing the temple of the Lord. It was there in all of its splendor. And Jesus knew that was about to change. He knew it was about to change. Just as he would tell the Samaritan woman at the well two chapters later in John, in John 4, the time was coming when true worshipers would not worship on a mountain in Jerusalem or Gerizim, but they would worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Why? Why was that change coming? It was changing because the spirit of the Lord was going to take up residence in a different place. The spirit of the Lord was going to take up residence not in a stone sanctuary, but in one made of flesh in the hearts of the believers. And so if you're in this room and you are a follower of Jesus Christ and your faith is in him, guess what? You are the temple of the Lord. You are. Now it's personal, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying the temple of the Lord where the spirit of the Lord dwells is not meant to be a marketplace. It's meant to be a place of prayer and worship. When the religious leaders then ask Jesus for a sign, I I love this. They they, they do this here and they also do this later uh, during Holy Week where Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the money changers' tables, which is a demonstration of authority, right? If somebody goes into a room and rearranges the furniture... It's a demonstration of authority. If somebody came into your house and rearranged your living room without your permission, the question on your lips would be, hey, who do you think you are? 
right? Get out of here. This is mine. Why, why do you think it's okay for you to come in and rearrange my house? That's basically what they do when Jesus does this. When he overturns the money changers' tables, what they're saying is, we did not give you authority to do this, so on what authority are you doing this? Because if you didn't get it from us, you don't have it. And Jesus says to them, tear down this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Let's not be too hard on the religious, religious leaders for not getting what Jesus meant because there was no category for what Jesus meant, right? They're, the only thing they know is this temple took 46 years to build and you're saying, one, tear it down, which is an abhorrent thought, and two, you're going to put it back together in three days. I love the way the text is, is uh, you know, this is written by John, who was one of Jesus' three closest disciples. And I love the kind of the understatement and also the admission of ignorance that he has himself when he says this. He says uh, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. He's included in that, right? John is. He's like, we didn't know either. It wasn't until after he had died and risen on the third day, and we remembered that he said this, that we put together what he meant. But that's what he says. He says, tear this temple down, and I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about the physical temple, but he was talking about his own body, and his disciples remembered it, but we know that Jesus was talking about more than just that. He was talking about more than just himself, and we know this because we know that Jesus would then give the Holy Spirit to all who would believe in him, and believers would be people who would be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit doesn't just accompany us through life, like a wingman, like somebody who's just with us, around us, near us, but the Holy Spirit indwells us. We are temples, in other words. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? That's pretty clear what he's saying, right? And our union with Christ through his Holy Spirit is not a temporary situation. It's an eternal one. In Romans 8, 11, Paul says this, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you, will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Our life is bound up in the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And so to the people in Jerusalem, all they saw was the temple, the stone temple. And for many, worship was just a series of sacrifices and rituals and things they were supposed to do and boxes they were supposed to check. And the money changers and the livestock, they were life hacks for worship. They were means to simplify the details that the old book called for. And Jesus is overturning that. And he's overturning it in that moment, but also forever. And he's doing it by becoming the sacrifice who knows us. So when you read this passage of Jesus overturning the money changers and the, tab the tables and the money changers and driving out the livestock in the temple, 
It's Jesus standing on that knife's edge knowing it's not going to be long before the temple of the Lord is people and not a place. And then this prophetic act, prophetic, this act of prophetic symbolism, that's the word I'm looking for, Jesus is saying, this is about more than a ritual. This is about more than ease. This is about being all in. And so that's what I want to land with in this practical application is really just an appeal. May we not approach life in general as something to just figure out how to make as easy as possible. Live your life. Live it. Engage with it. When we take a life hack approach to our spiritual lives, we misunderstand the point of worship. When we're trying to figure out the easiest ways to worship God, we're making a gross miscalculation about God. And that's this. We mistake him to be like a Baal. We mistake him to be like somebody who's really just more interested in our religious behavior than our hearts and our lives. And I'm happy to report to you that's not the case. He's not just interested in your religious, ritualistic behavior. He's interested in you. God's not like the pagan deities who demand tribute or sacrifice in exchange for favor. He doesn't demand that we shovel money and meat into his belly in exchange for blessing and mercy. He gives nothing reluctantly. Why? Because he's not impersonal. He's not impersonal. In the act of worship, what God wants from you and what he wants from me, what he wants from us, is he wants ourselves. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you to read your Bible seven days in a row without breaking the streak. It's awesome if you do that. You should. But if you get to day eight and you don't read your Bible, God's not throwing his hands in the air and saying, I could have called that. <laughs> right? That's not how he is. In the act of worship, what God wants from us is ourselves. He wants our whole minds, hearts, souls, and strength. It's the greatest command. What? Love the Lord your God with everything you have and with everything you are. And here's the kicker. You were made for this. You were made for this. God's not asking you to do something that's out of the realm of what you were created to do in the first place. It's right down the middle of the plate. You were made for this. You were made to be known and loved by your creator, engaged with your maker. St. Augustine said it this way. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You may be hearing these words and saying, I, I know that restlessness. I have a restlessness of soul that I have not been able to put my finger on. And my prayer for you today is that what's happening right now, that stirring, that restlessness you're feeling, is Jesus overturning the money changers' tables in your hearts. 
And then he's telling you, this is not what worship is. This is not what you were made for. You weren't made for empty ritual. You weren't made for life hacks that make worship easy. You were made to engage. It's true. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. People are searching. They're searching for meaning. We're but we're treating the question of the meaning of life as though it's some unanswerable mystery. What's the meaning of life? Huh? What if it's not an unanswerable mystery? What if it is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism gets right in its opening question, what is the chief end of man? Because the answer is, because that's another way of saying what's the meaning of life? The answer is it's to worship God and glorify him forever. Right? The chief end of man is to glorify, actually, it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the language. Some of you Presbyterians were going to come after me. <laughs> the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What if the meaning of life is to be known and loved by the one who gave life to you? What if that's the meaning? To cultivate that relationship for the life to come, yes, but also in this life now. When that's not happening, Jesus walks in and he starts overturning the tables, saying this is wrong. This is the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship is to know and love God. It's to give glory to his name for his magnificence, for his mercy, for his grace, for his power, for his glory, for his beauty. And you and I were made for this. It's the sweet spot. You know what we were not made for? Disengaged lives where our chief goal is to make everything as easy for ourselves as possible. You were not, it's empty. You were not made for that. You were not made for that. If you're gonna have life hacks, if you're gonna use life hacks, use them to simplify your life so that you can engage and invest in the things that you should. Don't use them simply so that you can check out. Why is our chief goal not to have everything be as easy as possible? It's because love is hard. And we're called to love. And love is hard and it'll break your heart. But the life hack for love breaking your heart is to not love anymore. Love takes work. Receiving love takes work. Loving well takes work. Because it commands things of us that require the work of being present, being vulnerable, being honest, being patient, being hopeful, being faithful. And worship is an expression of love. It's an expression of love, and it's anything but passive. We're called to study the object of our worship, to know him, not merely to appease God, but to know him, to know him intimately, with ever-growing knowledge, with ever-growing affection. That's what we're called to. When we do this, we're growing in who we were meant to be. So when do we do this? We do it now. We do it right now. We do it in our lives every day, in our personal devotion to the Lord throughout the week, in our corporate worship together. We come together and we engage.
We're about to come to the Lord's table. This is a place that would be so easy to turn into an empty ritual because we do it every week. And I say kind of the same thing every week. And if you've been here since October, you probably can just sing along with me with all the things that I say for the Lord's table. That's not because I lack creativity. It's because there are certain things that it's important to me as a pastor that we, that we drill in, you know, that we remember as a part of this. Worship is not mere maintenance. It's not like checking in with a therapist to make sure you're okay. It's the work of growing ever more deeply in love with our God. And you were made for this. More than anything else, you were made to know and love and delight in your creator. The temple is no longer a building. We're the temple. And the Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of the people of God. And you were created to be a house of prayer. Do not turn your heart into a spiritual marketplace of ideas by reducing worship down to a series of life hacks, empty routines, and check boxes. Don't waste your life on that. Because you have one life and it's happening right now. This is it. It's underway. I pray that Jesus would do for us what he does in the temple here. That he would overturn the tables, that he would drive out of us any attempt to reduce worship to ease, which is another way of reducing worship to just self-protection. You were made for more. I was made for more. The people of God are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for passages like this that remind us that you were not a guru. You were not somebody who dispensed clever turns of phrases, inspirational talks, um, the power of positive thinking but that you fought for our hearts to not disengage, but to engage, and to engage with you, that you, you were confrontational in such a loving and devoted way. Lord, it's true that in those times when we need to be fought for, we, we rarely know it. Um, a lot of times, Lord, because we are so disengaged with with our own need, that we don't even know how to, how to engage with it, how to bring it up. So Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you for taking the time to sit and make a whip of cords and cause this scene, this prophetic act of symbolism. And uh, Lord, may, may it translate then into our own lives. May we examine our hearts before you and remember that what we were made for was we were made for intimate fellowship with you, which is seen as clearly as anywhere in the communion table that we come to now, that you've given us a seat at this table, that you're here, that you're present with us when we come to this table. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.